you know, it's so funny. We've been having these conversations so much because this whole midlife crisis we're going through where we've become an empty nest has been a little bit of a shock to us trying to figure out what to do next. And I've always thought eight million was my number because eight million at four percent is going to be 320. By the time taxes are involved, that's 240. That's 20 grand a month net. I pretty much think I can do anything I want to do in life and maintain lifestyle and actually probably increase lifestyle a little bit because we save so much right now if I had that number. If somebody were to say wrap it up in one word in terms of you know your success and your family and, and all that, it's it's marry well, right? I mean, marriage is grand, divorce is 50 grand. I have the best wife in the world. I mean, she is so supportive. She is the world's best mom. Welcome millionaires and future millionaires. You're listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, the show where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their portfolio allocation. Now to your host, Jace Mattinson. Welcome to the Millionaires and Milk Podcast. This is episode number 296. Stace, how's it going? Doing great over here. I have officially survived the first week of summer, and congratulations to everyone else who survived their first week of summer and all the kids home. Good deal. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a little bit of a change, right, with everybody getting out of school and adjusting to summer plans and summer travel and all that kind of fun stuff. So uh, it's good to it's good to have the kids home a little bit more. And recently we've been uh, they've, I guess, expressed interest in money a little bit. So we've been uh, starting that journey, which has been fun. Oh, yes. Tess is a big spender is really <laughs> where it stems from. Our oldest really wants to spend money. And uh, and so we've been trying to discuss some ways that they can really learn the value of money. And we also don't want them to have this idea that we buy something everywhere we go. So tonight we had our very first actual money lesson. And today was their first day of making money. I've been chewing for a few weeks on how to teach them about money and especially with do you do chores? Do you do an allowance? And there are some things that I feel like they need to do because they're part of this family and live in this house. And there are other things that I think that it's okay for them to earn money doing. So I finally did it. I dove in. I just started jotting everything down on paper. So I now have sticker chores and money chores. And you earn stickers for certain chores. You earn money for other chores. And I haven't quite figured out if sticker chores convert at some time to money or if they convert to experience or if they're happy enough for them to just receive the stickers. I don't know. But the money chores is where they're really having fun with it. But actually, they're really excited about both. They totally did many of their chores without being asked uh, repeatedly today. So that's a win. And those are just sticker chores. And money chores, uh, our oldest made... 80 cents today and our youngest or our middle child made 50 cents today. So <laughs> they're feeling good. They helped me with uh, they helped me a lot in the yard today and also with with some dishes. So we're learning it and uh, and talking about the value of different currencies and coins and, and dollars and whatnot. So I'm actually most excited about the 25 cent. This one should be a sticker chore, but it's a money chore in this house because I want them to stay in their beds and go to bed when I ask them. 
So this is a 25 cent reward, which is their highest <laughs> if they don't come out of their rooms after they're put to bed and wait until their lights change colors in the morning to come out. So TBD, we'll see if they earned another 25 cents in the morning. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm uh, I'm I'm glad to be a little bit of a, a participant, but also fly on the wall with uh, with this one. I hope everybody had a great Memorial Day yesterday, and obviously had some time to reflect on why we celebrate this holiday. And and you know, shout out to all those. We've had quite a few recent military guests. Appreciate their service. Those uh, who also are in public service as well. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's. It's a it's a great holiday. I'm definitely grateful for for the freedoms that we all have, and and in those that sacrifice so much for for us to have those freedoms. I wanted to start off today. Got quite a few uh, reviews the last couple of weeks here, and uh, yeah, I thought I'd read a couple of them. They're great. This one comes from one J Taz five thirty five. Variety of ways to become a millionaire, not your cookie cutter show with people promoting their products or websites, true millionaires and soon to be millionaires sharing the ways that help them grow. No gimmick here. Appreciate that. Read one more here real quick. This, uh, this one comes from Blacksburg, Virginia, I guess. Uh, there are a lot of financial podcasts that all start to sound similar after listening to several of them. They rehash the same ideas over and over. This one is different. Even if there are people that are interviewed that have taken similar paths to their financial success, they have started in different places and they have different stories. Thank you. And with that, today I'm super pumped. We have Kevin on the podcast and we, or I guess before I get into a little detail about him, his net worth is $3.5 million. And he works in the CPG space, which is consumer packaged goods. I'm getting a little bit of that in detail there. And uh, yeah, he's been a W-2 employee his whole career. So pretty pretty unique and uh, really hasn't gone outside of, of that and investing in uh, traditional retirement type accounts and brokerage accounts and gets into why he doesn't do real estate and all these other things that seem to be so popular nowadays. And uh, yeah, great interview with him. We actually get into a couple topics on this that I am pumped we have never even addressed on the show. So uh, dealing with some inheritance and whatnot. So great episode going to be coming up with Kevin. I cannot wait uh, for y'all to hear it. It is a little bit longer episode than normal, but a lot of great content, a lot of great uh, topics. Last week we had Joe and Ashley, and net worth was around 1.6, 1.7, with half of that being in, in real estate and uh, 25% retirement and other investments. If you'd like to be on the show, send us an email, millionairesandbailed at gmail.com. Also, we'd love to uh, continue to get more reviews as it's a nice thank you to uh, tell the guests and uh, continues to help us grow the show and get quality guests as well to keep coming on the podcast. So without any further delay, let's get into the interview with Kevin. Kevin, do you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Yeah, I am a good old-fashioned W-2 employee. I've been uh, in consumer packaged good industries since, I guess, 1995. So that puts it uh, 28 years over primarily a couple of companies. Uh, worked at a place until 2015 and then left there and went uh, to a new place and a promoted position in 2015 and, uh, and have been there ever since. And uh, just kind of a steady climb, uh, half a dozen promotions over the years and uh, got myself into a place where I run the country for um, one of our divisions, about 13 percent of our business. I have about, you know, 
$700 million for the business that sits underneath me and uh, uh, 10 direct reports and uh, a second level of reports that go underneath me and just uh, uh, just kind of woke up one day and said, wow, that's uh, a big business that I run that uh, has been uh, just kind of happened over time. Awesome. And I want to get a little bit into your career and everything, but what is your net worth today? Yeah, it runs about $3.5 million. You know, we're still sitting about 15, 18% off of market uh, market highs. So I think I probably have room to run into the, about the $4 million range. But if you look at it, it's broken out as about $1.1 million that's sitting in $1.1, $1.2 sitting in a, an IRA, uh, $450,000 in a 401k. I got about $350,000, $400,000 in a, an after-tax investment account, um, another uh, $50,000 in cash and emergency fund, $70,000 in an IRA, um, a BDA my wife inherited when uh, her mom died uh, back in 2010. And then about $200,000 that sits in 529s with uh, two kids, one that still has two years left and one right behind him that will have four years uh, at college as well. So, oh, and on top of that, I've got uh, a collectibles. I got a, a sports card collection, uh, probably about a quarter million dollars, somewhere in that range as far as what's that worth. Uh, a couple of new vehicles uh, that we bought in the last year that uh, sit in the $100,000, $150,000 range. So when you add it all up, it works out to about $3.5 million. Good for you. So let's break a couple of these things down for a second. So the IRA and the 401k and the taxable brokerage, which makes out a pretty good chunk of everything, is that invested in stocks, mutual funds, bonds? Yeah, it's in uh, it's in mutual funds uh, primarily. Um, I have uh, about, like I said, between 1.1 and 1.2 in an IRA that was uh, what I brought from a 401k from the employment that I left in 2015. It was probably about 650 to 700,000 when I brought it over in 2015, and it sits in an 80-20 portfolio. So, you know, 80% equities, 20% bonds, and then inside of that 80%, it's 80% domestic, 20% uh, international. Things like AB large cap. Um, I've got, uh, you know, uh, several several funds that sit inside of there, but um, uh, again, primarily domestic within a mix between uh, large cap, small cap, um, value, uh, you know, just, just kind of uh, over the full gamut. I've had a a financial advisor since about 2013, and he's got me in a really balanced portfolio. Why did you decide to roll that over instead of leave it there or move it into your new employer? <laughs> That's a great question. I, um, like I said, it was about 700,000 when I brought it over, and I had just started with my financial advisor in 2013. And I mean, he makes about uh, six tenths of a point off of me, and I knew what that math looked like at, at $700,000. And I thought long and hard about it and really looked at it. And I had about eight different funds I had the choice of of where it was versus 8,000 that were sitting on the open market. And so um, it was just a matter of bringing it over for that entire relationship. And and again, when uh, we went over the funds one by one, we saw who the you know, the fund manager was, we saw the history, we saw the, the um, we saw the companies that were part of it as well, too. It really felt like it made a lot of sense to bring it over. And again, it's probably at its height, it was about 1.3, you know, before uh, at the end of 2021. So almost doubled at that point from 2015 when it came in. So I'm really happy with the decision to bring it over. Had you ever had a financial advisor before that point? No, we uh, we started in 2013. A friend of mine uh, advised me because 
we were at the point where my oldest was 14 years old. And even though I kind of had a path to get him to college, I just wasn't 100 percent quite sure what I was going to do. And so a friend advised me and back probably around 20, uh, 2000, 2001, 2002, we went and visited a guy at American Express just didn't really love the vibe, didn't like kind of the the way that he was talking, even it had some stuff around whole life insurance inside of it. It just didn't seem to make sense at the time. And we went with this guy in 2013 and, um, you know, talked a language that I really understood. I had been a Ramsey guy, really got uh, and, and followed Dave Ramsey around uh, 2009, 2010. And uh, we were to the point where we were ready to start really getting serious about investing, get our kids through college, wanting to find uh, folks that really lined up there. And uh, and he was patient with me. He understood I was a little bit of a zealot at the time and kind of uh, he understood where I was coming from and coached me where I needed to be and got us in the right stuff. So, uh, again, uh, everything I've done, it, uh, you know, it's been 10 years now, but the best decision I ever made was going to my financial advisor. And Kevin, when you're thinking about which funds to invest in with your advisor, do you talk about things like expense ratios or do you know what the, those are for the funds you're invested in? Yeah, they're they're actively managed. And so they're a little bit higher than, say, you know, Boglehead that might just have, uh, you know, an S&P 500 fund. Uh, but we, we do look at it and we we back test it. It shows me how it works relative to the market, relative to the uh, you know, the uh, the base fund. So I know that even though it's costing me a little bit more, I'm still performing above market averages over time. Now, again, I've seen the numbers. I know that, you know, in a 10, 15, 20 year time frame for somebody to consistently actively manage and beat market index funds is a really tough thing. But, you know, he's, he's shown me the data time and time again where we've, we've picked the right stuff and it's, you know, it tends to be about a point to two points above uh, market averages. What about some of the other biggest learnings that you've had from working with this advisor? Yeah, it's, you know, it's so funny because more than anything, he's been the guy that in the fall of 2018, when things were falling apart a little bit, and it's kind of the first time I've really been through it, or, you know, heaven help us in March of 2020, just saying, hold on, everything's going to be okay. Um, really understanding this idea of valuation and the fact that, um, you know, think about now with inflation, you hardly have ever seen a situation where it costs more to buy the products from the company that is made, but somehow the company is worth less than what, what it was before. That doesn't seem to make sense. And at some point that irrationality will come together. So he's been really great. And, and I know I'm a high maintenance client with him. I follow up a lot of times. I've got different suggestions, different things. And a lot of times his job is to make sure that I do nothing. Probably more important is, is that my wife, uh, it becomes the person that if something were ever happened to me, he and I walk in lockstep and he knows exactly what I'm thinking. So he'll be the perfect person you know, to stand in that gap if everything would happen to me with my wife. Mm, that's great. And it sounds like you're getting your money's worth. So that's awesome. Absolutely. I tell you what, I, I, I never I never doubt the value. I never doubt the value because it's an accountability partner. It's somebody who forces the discipline on me. You know, we're on a regular rotation as far as our, our investments. Uh, we have every six month checkups in terms of, you know, when we're getting together. You know, a couple of weeks ago I had uh, I, I came into an inheritance. My, my father passed away and I've been the executor of the estate and had to kind of go over line by line what we're going to do with that. And just just somebody that's that's a really a great partner for me. And uh, again, I, I can't recommend him high enough. And I know that people get caught up in the it's 0.6 percent, this ratio, that ratio. I, again, just having somebody that I know that uh, is, is my accountability partner, make sure that I continue to stay true to, uh, you know, 
the investments every single month, every other week, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you, you're happy about this also because uh, you feel like your wife is set up if anything you know bad were to happen to you. Are there any other things that you do with your investments to sort of structure it with that in mind? Yeah, you know, it's it, it is really funny. Again, I told you I'm a W-2 employee, right? My first job out of college because I was a first generation college student. I, um, I I kind of fumbled my way through four years, got to the other side of it and kind of said, OK, I got my degree. Where's my job now? And it took me you know, a good year to kind of get my footing and figure it out. And I tell folks I couldn't spell CPG when I was in college. If you spotted me the C and the G, I just didn't know what it was and just kind of you know stumbled into it. And my first job out of college paid seventeen thousand dollars. And um, and then I got into uh, this business and it was you know, $23,000 and just became a little bit more over time. And uh, and eventually it became something where, you know, my wife, uh, we had our first child in, in 1999 and we both worked at the time and I got double promoted that year and she decided to stay home. And, uh, you know, she took that risk because if she's going to stay home, she's trusting me to be the provider for the family and, and somebody's going to take care of her. And like I said, luckily I got double promoted that year, and and I made sixty nine grand by myself. We made seventy two thousand dollars the year before. That was nineteen ninety nine, and just from that point, it's been in the rearview mirror. So it's been one of those deals where it's been a very liquid investment portfolio. You get a lot of people that talk on this show about real estate. I mean, I got to tell you, you can't find anybody in this world that probably one doesn't want to do real estate more than me. I'm not handy. I don't like to deal with tenants. I don't want to deal with vacancies and rents and somebody would give me a sob story and I give them the month for free and I just I wouldn't be able to, uh, you know, really keep up with it. So I have no desire. Now, there could be things like car washes and laundromats and self-storage units and things like that that I might be interested at some point. But my financial advisor always reminds me that at this point of my life and my career, that's when folks start uh, unloading those kind of things to become more liquid. And that's where I am already. So it's, it's, it's very liquid in terms of how it looks. Um, my, my goal right now is to continue to build that after-tax investment account. So it's, it's stuff that I've got my hands on. So that if I would call the career early, I'd be OK because I'd have that after tax money. I wouldn't be worried about 59 and a half of 401ks and things like that. Kevin, I want to ask you and back up just a little bit. When you first took this job in the CPG space, which we're, we're learning what that means now, maybe or many or guests may not know. Did you start investing right away in your 401k? <laughs> yeah, and, and like I said, Jason, I'm glad you said it because CPG is consumer packaged goods, right? It's the stuff we find in the grocery store, we buy or our favorite brands, all that kind of stuff. But the way it worked for me was um, I had a job where they had a 6% match and then they had a 5% pension that became a, a cash balance pension I could take out. So when I was about 15 years old, I had a teacher that took me to a conference one time that talked about, you know, investing $100 a month. And by the time you were 65, it was worth a million dollars. And, you know, I was a, a poor kid from a small town from a you know single uh, single parent home. And it was just it was kind of blew my mind in terms of talking about it. So I didn't know exactly what I was supposed to do. But when I started working, they brought the 401k figures around. I said, well, the minimum thing I got to do is get it up to the match to get their money and then go from there. So what I would always do is I would do 10 percent. I would get the 6 percent match and then they do the 5 percent sitting on top of that. So I'd have 21 percent going in. So from about 23 years old, it was always that 21 percent between what I had and what the company matched along the way. 
And for the longest time, that was about all that I did. But again, at 23, putting that much money in, that's what kind of built it over time, even though you didn't realize it as it was going in. And did you put it in just whatever funds you could find that they had available? <laughs> yeah, you know, it was kind of like a little bit of a roulette wheel. They had eight or nine choices in our 401k, and I put it in there. And at one point, I put it into the whatever it was, the 2040 or the 2045 fund and figured there'd be enough things that would happen. And it was all about what the savings rate and making sure it was going in every couple of weeks. And that was really, you know, where the goal was. But it was very simplistic. And I had really no idea other than I knew it was supposed to be, you know, in these uh, in these mutual funds and it would grow over time because that's what they told me when I was a younger kid. Wow. So really no strategic direction to, for the most part, other than, hey, let's put this in here. Let's do this. Let's go on. And then 2013 is when you really started kind of honing in on your strategy. Well, I, I'd even take it one step farther than that, Jace. 2009, I was in Hawaii on a vacation with my wife and I stumbled across Dave Ramsey and I thought, wow, that kind of sounds pretty interesting. And so I just got really dogmatic about understanding his plan and his, you know, he said 15%. I felt like I was ahead of the game, but we had had this huge mortgage we had been working on for quite some time. And it just became this obsession for me to save for the kids for college and get this mortgage paid for and just kind of listened every day and followed. And I could like answer the questions before they were even uh, you know answered by him in terms of how he was going to go about it. And I knew what it was. And then when I went in 2013 and found our financial advisor and I'm like going, OK, at that point, I had about if you take the equity of our house and what we had had saved back in the 401k, it was about nine hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars, you know, probably six hundred and fifty, seven hundred in the 401k and about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in equity at that time. And my shoulders were rolled back and I was feeling really good about that. So I think I was probably 41 years old when that happened. And, uh, you know, just realized that I was a little bit retirement and house rich, but a little bit life poor. And so that's when we really got serious about both college savings plus starting to put back for the uh, the actual investment account as well for the for the after-tax brokerage. And how did you even know to do that match back then? Yeah, again, it was just one of those things where I remembered when I was 15 years old and they went to the um, I went to that conference with that teacher of mine and they would talk about making sure that whatever free money was there, you took advantage of it. So that was always my goal. And uh just making sure that if there was a dollar to pick up off the ground and put it uh, in my investments, you know, that was going to come from the company. That's what I was going to do just from that that thing I remembered all that, those years ago. Wow. So real quick, I want to dive into a couple of things that, that you've got. The, the car thing. Is this new in, in terms of having a chunk of your portfolio in cars or or is this something that you always valued and, and put money towards? Yeah, if, if you if you'll uh, <laughs> if you allow me to, to tell you the story, it's kind of crazy. You know, I was a collector when I was a kid, right? Eight, nine, 10 years old. And I would go to uh, these card shows and I'd be this nine or 10 year old kid with my nose on the glass, looking at all these cards and the and the dealers would shoo me away because the guys would be coming behind him and they'd have all the money. And so around Around that same time, I think it was around 2012, I've got two sons that at the time I think were 13 and 9, and I took them up to Cooperstown. And Cooperstown had this um, display with uh, Ken Hendrick, who owns the Arizona Diamond Bass, and he's the guy that has the nicest Honus Wagner that's there, and he has some really nice cards. And then they had this other display, and I would point to the, the, uh, the display with the boys and say, I used to have that one, I used to have that one, I used to have that one, I used to have that one. And I came home. 
And I was on eBay. And I was like looking at these cards because I had just gone that weekend and I told my wife, I'm the one I used to have this card. I used to have this card. And she says to me, she says, if you want them so bad, just go and buy them. Now, what she meant was like, I listed like 10 or 15 different cards that I used to have when I was older. I didn't have anymore. That's what she meant. What I took it as, that was the green light to go buy everything I ever wanted as a kid but couldn't afford. <laughs> so in the process of five or six years, um, I went and I started and I started buying the complete sets and I started building the complete sets. And I would start going backwards year by year by year by year to the point where I had everything from 1948 all the way to the current with the exception of 1951 Bowen and 1952 Tops. And I had about $100,000 into it. And then there was a real explosion in value through COVID that the, probably the value is about $250,000 right now. And it was never meant to be that. It was a labor of love of these cards that I always wanted as a kid, but I couldn't get, I couldn't afford that now that I could afford, you know, that became what I did. And now again, it becomes part of our, our net worth something that's probably about a quarter of a million dollars in value. Wow. And you plan on, on accumulating more? Well, it is funny because I'm at the point right now where to go buy something big, right? To go buy a 52 Mantle or 51 Mantle or 51 Maze, it's a 10, 15, 20, $50,000 type of acquisition. So I have to decide at this point, would I rather that money be sitting in a mutual fund growing at 9.3% nominal rate over time? And I know exactly what it would be. Or do I buy a baseball card that sits in the safe at a safe deposit box or, you know, at my house or something like that? I, I don't, I don't know. So I'm, I'm at this really weird point where it's, uh, I don't know if there's additional accumulation or I just sit on what I have because I'm at the point where either I get offload it now or I have to wait until I pass and pass it to the kids for there's a step up in basis because there's a lot of money to be made in collectibles I've come to find. The problem is the, the money tends to be made by auction houses and Uncle Sam taking it through capital gains. Support for today's episode comes from OneSkin. If you've ever thought to yourself, what if we could reverse the root causes of aging, then listen closely. Our new sponsor, OneSkin, puts science and research first. Founded by a team of four female PhD-level longevity scientists with over 15 years of experience, OneSkin sets out not to just decrease the visible signs of aging, but to treat the root cause of causes of skin aging. I'm talking essential face moisturizer, eye topical supplement to firm, and a topical body supplement to keep your body moisturized so skin doesn't look just younger and healthier. It functions like younger and healthier skin. But how you may ask, OneSkin's products are formulated with their own OS01 peptide as the primary active ingredient to support the skin's ability to resist the effects of intrinsic and extrinsic aging factors. Their flagship product, OS01 Face, is clinically proven to strengthen the skin barrier and improved key skin health markers, meaning signs of aging are significantly diminished. For a limited time, our listeners can get 15% off OneSkin with our code MILLIONAIRE at oneskin.co. OneSkin is the world's first longevity company. OneSkin addresses skin health at the molecular level, targeting the root causes of aging, and so skin behaves, feels, and appears younger. It's time to get started with your new face, eye, and body routine at a discounted rate today. Get 15% off with the code MILLIONAIRE at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code MILLIONAIRE. We only have one body, one skin, and you can only choose to make it better. Age healthy with one skin. And thanks again to OneSkin for supporting today's episode. I'm not very familiar with collectibles. When when you are 
at the point where you're trying to actually, you know, liquidate these, what does that plan look like? Or or do you already have a plan for that? Yeah, it's it's one of two things. I mean, there there are big auction houses, Heritage, Robert Edward Auctions. You know, there's there's a lot of places like that. And uh, they put catalogs out every three months, every six months. You know, that's an option. But I I have uh, several you know, websites that I'm, I'm part of, that I'm privy to with a lot of collectors that, uh, you know, have folks that uh, I know will, if that day would come, would take care of it for me. And uh, and even if it be after I pass, would make sure that, you know, there's there's fair market value given and, and that's given, you know, to to, uh, to my wife. And, and again, I, I've gone downstairs and I've looked at him and I thought, you know, maybe today's the day to liquidate. But every time I go look at him, I remember you get pretty good at it after a while. I mean, you understand the value inside of auctions. You realize what's a good deal, what's not a great deal. And you end up being able to buy, buy right. Cause it's just like real estate in the sense that the, the money's made on the buy. And, and when you buy right, you know, the example I always use is I've got a 1954 Hank Aaron PSA six. I paid $1,600 for in 2014 that, you know, I probably wouldn't let go for anything less than nine or 10 now based on where the market is, but it was just trying to find the right guy with the right card and every card has that story. So if I ever get rid of them, you know, again, it's simply to move asset classes to make it easier for the family because, you know, you have to have a little bit of knowledge to be able to understand how to get through them. But, you know, that'll be a bridge that we cross, you know, kind of trying to figure out what the best thing to do from a long-term taxability standpoint is. So at this point, you have no you have no timeline to to actually, you know, liquidate, even if it's, you know, at retirement or anything like that. You just plan to hold. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not like I mean, we're we're fairly comfortable as far as life's concerned. So there's nothing that I'm really aching for to go buy. So, again, the only thing I would do is ever sold them would be to turn around and put that in my mutual fund somewhere. Right. So it would just be going from one thing to another. And I just really don't see where that makes a ton of sense right now. It's it's actually pretty good diversification over these last couple of years because while the market has had its rocky roads in the last 18 months, the, the, you know, the um, collectibles have stayed relatively stable. They ran up really hot during COVID and they dipped a little bit. But when you get to the point where you're buying vintage stuff, you're not worried about if the guy's going to make the all-star game next year, if he's going to tear his ACL. It's, you know, he's, he's relatively established and that value is going to go up pretty much with the rate of inflation. Uh, we, we noticed a couple other fun assets on your on your balance sheet. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the, your cars and, and also your watch? Yeah, you know, it's I have always prided myself in not needing a nice car. I had a company car in 2000. I had a company car since 1997, 1995. I didn't really buy my first vehicle up until about a year ago. I had a Mercury Mariner that 186,000 miles on that the boys both learned how to drive on that they beat up and banged and I worked from home and it just didn't matter. And uh, in the last year, I was able to get this Ford F-150 Lariat that has all these options on it. It's the nicest thing I've ever driven in my entire life. Had like a $73,000 sticker on it. And there were some fortunate things that happened. I think I told you earlier, my dad had passed away and I had inherited his truck and I was able to trade it in. And my wife had had a, um, a minivan. She had one in 2003 and then she traded that in and got another one in 2012. And in the fall of 2021, it was kind of like, well, the kids have kind of gone off to college and they're all grown up. So she got a really nice Volvo XC90. And, you know, cars are kind of utility assets until they become 
preferential assets. And we have these two vehicles in our car that are, you know, a year and a half old. And the most either one of them have, I think, is 8,000 miles and they never get driven, but they are they're the nicest things we've ever had. And, um, and again, I, I go back to what Rob talks about, right? It was like we changed Rob Berger. We changed the, um, the van out once every 10 years. And I drove a company car. So when it kind of finally came time to have a nice vehicle, we were able to write a check for it and really enjoy it. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a really nice preferential asset that we have in the garage. Wow. So, you know, it was sort of a uh, combination of a bunch of things that led to this drastic change in your your car lifestyle. Do you have any thoughts on like if you'd wished you had pulled the trigger earlier to upgrade or if you, you know, already see the slippery slope of a lifestyle inflation or something else? Yeah, you know, it's I, I, I caveat to say that I had told my wife when I got her her car that, you know, listen, this was her empty nest. You've you've raised some great kids and go enjoy life. Right. It was really for her. And I had uh, I had bought a 2016 pickup truck that was exactly what I needed. Again, I just don't drive very often and it sits in the garage. And then just through some fortunate events, I mean, unfortunate, my father passed away, but, you know, he left this this truck for me and and it didn't really it was a thousand dollars i gave the dealership where we traded car keys and um so i kind of stumbled onto it so it was never my intention to have you know one hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of vehicles in the garage it just kind of happened that way but uh again i but i will tell you you know we we put back more than 25 percent of our income every single month uh, our house is paid for. We paid cash for those vehicles. So, you know, we were enjoying them at this stage of our life. And I don't regret having, you know, having cheaper cars back in the old days, knowing that we were putting money back. And we're just at the point of our life where we're actually getting to enjoy it because it's not like we're not saving while we buy those vehicles. And what about your watch? <laughs> so, um, in 2012, I had uh, I had a little bit of a health scare as far as uh, you know some some numbers that were getting a little high, blood sugar things like that. So I got really serious about working out, started running a lot, working out a lot, really watching what I was eating, and I set a goal at 50 pounds. If I got 50 pounds, I was going to buy a blue-faced Rolex Submariner. It was like my dream watch. And um, and I ended up losing about 52 and a half pounds. Now, I put most of it back on. I'd like to think I put it back on in different places, but I put a lot of it back on and they didn't make me give the watch back. But uh, that was such a big deal for me. I mean, it was, it was it was so awesome having that watch. And I'll tell you, the funniest thing is for the last two years, it's been sitting in one of those winders that every six minutes it goes off for two minutes and I wear an Apple watch. I don't even wear it anymore, but what it represents as far as, you know, losing the weight and uh, getting my blood sugar numbers down. And it was just such a reward for me that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll probably always have it. And uh, I'll probably have to buy a second one because I got two boys. So I got to figure out who I'm going to leave it to, but, uh, but it is a sense of pride for me. I love that. I don't think anyone will ask for it back. So that's, you <laughs> earned it. <laughs> So thinking a little bit of a bigger picture here, what is your strategy with housing and, and thinking about a mortgage and, and your house? Yeah, it's uh, in 2003, we built this house and I was 31 at the time and uh, we stretched. We we got a little bit of house fever. We probably should have taken a few showers, but uh, we got house fever. And we and just to back up in 1997, I had gotten hired into my role at thirty eight thousand six hundred dollars. Fast forward five years later in 2002, with bonus, it was the first year I'd made $100,000. So I was on this trajectory that was pretty fast. 
And um, and we had lived in a house and we had really it was, it was more than enough house for us. And I was on a 15 year mortgage and we went house hunting one Sunday. And next thing you know, we signed this contract for this house that, again, we still live into this day. But it's it's fifty six hundred square feet. It's uh, you know, it's it's five bedrooms. It's five and a half bathrooms. It's it's a pretty big house. And when we build it to grow into it. But. Yeah, we were probably the definition back in 2003 of house poor. I mean, I remember making $2,300 net per paycheck and one full paycheck was going to pay the mortgage and $2,300 was the other paycheck because my wife was staying home with the kids and that was paying for everything else. And thank goodness the kids were small. And we took off five years and we didn't take vacations and we knew we had to, to sacrifice for it. But we got, um, and, and like I told you, I kind of got uh, Ramsey fever a little bit around 2009. <clears throat> and in 2013, 2012, right about the time we had our financial advisor, we refinanced one final time on a 15-year mortgage at 2.75%. And in March of 2020, we paid that house off seven and a half years later. And it's about $850,000 right now as far as the value. I know when I was given those numbers earlier, I probably didn't include that as part of it, but you know, probably about $850,000 and is paid for. And I think sometimes about how I'd love to have a 4.75% high yield savings account that I have right now and a 2.75% mortgage and how much smarter I would be had I done that and put all that money I was plowing into my mortgage at 2.75% into my investment fund. And I didn't do that. But I'll tell you this. I paid off my house on March 11, 2020. And I think March 12th or 13 was when everything started going crazy with COVID. And in April of 2020, when we wondered what the world was going to look like at that point, I slept really good that night knowing that my house was paid for. And now we take all that money that we don't have a mortgage for and we just plow it over and over and over again, you know, into our investment fund. So again, I probably cost myself three, four, five hundred thousand dollars in terms of investment value had I truly played the arbitrage, truly played you know the efficiency and optimization game. But we're we're in an okay place, and our house is paid for. And that feels pretty good right now. Wow! Congratulations, and I can imagine how how much of a relief it feels like, um, and and just how good it feels. So that's a, that's a huge accomplishment. Oh, I, I, I tell you, it's um. When, when, you know, it was one of those things we're doing it. It's it's what it's like when you, your house being paid for doesn't really count until it's all the way done. And so when you're plugging 50 and 60 and 70 thousand dollar bonus and options against it, but you're still not paid off. It doesn't change your monthly cash flow. It only changes once it's all done. Right. And then it's like it just it's like the sky opens up and it's like, you know, birds start singing and all you have our groceries and taxes and giving and it's just it's it really gets you know and I and I make a nice living doing what I'm doing and it almost all becomes discretionary at that point it's 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 really an awesome place to be so earlier you mentioned you know you're not interested in investing in real estate and you know the the heavens opened up when you paid off your mortgage do you see yourself ever getting another mortgage <laughs> have you been talking to my wife <laughs> um, it, it becomes a, it becomes a continual conversation that we have because uh, I think my wife would like to have a vacation place, and the thought was always that at some point, because this is not our original home, we would sell this place and would take this, and we maybe at that point we'd sell the collection or something like that, and I take a million and a half, two million dollars, whatever it is, and we buy something in a you know. Hilton Head, Kiwa Island, you know, somewhere in that kind of range down there. 
And then my uh, my middle my oldest son is in the process of moving back to where we are. Uh, my middle son is going to do an internship here locally. And I know that at some point somebody's going to get married. They're going to start having kids locally. And then we're going to have to decide, do we move away or do we have two different places? But I don't want to have a mortgage. So the whole idea was to be able to sell this place, be liquid with this, with some other money and go get a nice place. And now I got to figure out how to do this without ever having to borrow money in order to, because I really got used to not having a mortgage. Kevin, I got to tell you, man, listen to this. I want to be a W-2 employee. I want to come kick it with Kevin and be in the CPG space. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, it's funny, Jace. Um, you know, we uh, the way it works for us is we're base plus bonus, and then there's some long-term equity on the back end of it, right? There's um, I get stock options, restricted shares, and in a good year, a good typical year um, that might run, you know, four hundred grand. It's 50% base salary, and then there's that kind of 50% between short-term and long-term um, as far as the uh, the incentives are concerned, right? So it, it's kind of funny because I live on the base salary, and then we have a whole bunch of fun with you know th- the things that used to go towards college funding and paying for the house. Well, now all of a sudden all that stuff's taken care of, so that's when we go and we really have a lot of fun, you know, when when bonus checks come and, and equities and, and things like that. For sure. Did, how did you make that switch flip when you were saving, plowing, paying off the mortgage to, hey, man, I can go buy a sweet F-150 Lariat? <laughs> I, I I love the money guys, right? Brian and Bo, they're, they're like my, uh, my spirit animals. I was watching those guys and they made me feel OK about if I was putting back the 25 percent, if I was make, if I was doing my saving. I didn't need to go to 40. I could save at 25 and I could enjoy life in that margin. And so, uh, you know, I, it's, it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun because, you know, we, we took a whole family trip back in 2021 to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary. We took 13 people out to Maui in Hawaii and I got to, you know, cover most of that trip as well, too. And it was just a whole bunch of fun kind of being the guy to to write the check for the trip for everybody. And so I've been able to find a nice balance. And I think. Jace, the reason I've been able to do that is because giving has been really, 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 really important to me in the sense that I have a tendency to be a miser, you know, get that fist clenched and that money tight in my hand. So giving kind of forces that handout. So one of the things that we did a few years ago was we opened up a Fidelity Charities account because we were pretty regular tithers and givers to some different organizations. And, you know, when you take things like stock options that you can really time in terms of what years you do, and you could double up on a Fidelity Charities account as far as a giving fund's concerned, it really got to be nice as far as being able to, to control any type of tax liability that came with it. But really, it was a matter of when I knew that I was giving as I was supposed to, when I knew that I was saving my 25%, that money that's set above that, I was able to actually go enjoy without guilt, and uh, and we've had a lot of fun with it. We usually ask this at the end, but how much did you end up paying? I'm assuming that's the most expensive trip you paid for. How much was the trip to to Maui? About sixteen grand, six between oh, sixteen and seventeen. Yeah, wasn't terrible. wasn't terrible. Thirteen of y'all. Yeah, we um we had uh you know a day at Mama's Fish House. We rode down Haleakala. You know, we went to a luau together. I chartered a a boat for us to do. It was really a dream trip, and it just wasn't terrible. Uh, did a lot of work up front, but, uh, you know, it was, it was great. My dad was part of that trip as well. And, you know, he's passed here in this last year as well. So it was a great memory that, that everybody did together. But, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. 
And uh, and I do not regret it one iota. It was 16000 17000 very well spent. Did you pay for everybody's flights too? No, everybody – well, I paid for my six, and then uh, everybody else got there on their own, and then I covered it once we were all there. I like that formula, to be honest, <laughs> personally. <laughs> That's kind of what I've I've decided we'll probably end up doing is like, yeah. Hey, you get yourself there, and then I'll cover stuff. It was it was a nice trip because we had, had our 25th wedding anniversary, so we did a vow renewal ceremony. My oldest had just graduated from college. My middle one had just graduated high school. So we were able to take a whole bunch of things kind of and celebrate them all at one time and bring everybody out together to do it. So it was uh, – I recommend it for anybody. It was a wonderful time. That's awesome. I want to go back to something real quick that, that we glossed over uh, earlier that is really unique and we have not actually ever touched on on the podcast and that's the BDA IRA. Will you just, and I know you mentioned it just briefly on how it came about, but do you mind getting into how you manage that now? Is that something you talked with your financial advisor on the requirement and distributions on that and, and kind of the strategy around that? Yeah, my uh, my wife's parents uh, passed relatively young. My wife's mom died in 2010 and we inherited, I think it was about $46,000 that came in that at the time. And it was all untaxed. You know, it's her dad's former 401k. And so it was passed over to us and it's grown. It got as high as 83 and it sits around 70 grand right now. And I'm sure it'll recover once the market does. And so we weren't quite sure what to do because she passed before we really got with our financial advisor. So we got with somebody and they put us into a program, kind of a a structured annuity where we were getting clipped as far as participation rates and things like that. And we had to keep it for 10 years. So in 2020, it actually got turned over where it's, it's just one of the funds that we, you know, it looks a lot like the funds that I manage, you know, with my after-tax investment account, my IRA. Now I keep it a little heavier in bonds because with the RMDs, I, you know, I want to keep my entire portfolio at 80, 20, but that one might be more like, 70, 30, 65, 35, more heavily weighted in bonds because it grows a little bit less because of the RMDs. And what we started to do over the last couple of years is I just actually take the RMD, which is a couple of three grand every year, and every bit of that goes to federal withholding. So that helps me out with anything I have as far as dividends and short-term and long-term uh, unrealized and realized gains as far as capital is concerned. So you know, again, we just always pick the time of the year to say, okay, Go ahead and take the 2800 bucks, send it to the federal government. It will help us in April when we file our taxes. Awesome. And just for our listeners, the the, the BDA, it, it stands for Beneficiary Distribution Account. And that's something we haven't really touched on. And, and as you mentioned, it's, it comes through inheritance typically. And then there's some RMDs, which is fancy term for required minimum distributions that uh, we could we could go down a rabbit hole and all that stuff. But appreciate you touching on that real quick. One one thing I do want to ask, you got the, the Roth IRA at 20 grand. Has that not really been something that, that you focused on as part of your strategy and built up that taxable brokerage versus a Roth per se? Yeah, this is this is back to me being a neophyte in the early years and just doing a pre-tax 401k before I really knew what I was doing. And by the time I figured it all out, I was making a little bit too much money to where it made more sense to do it as uh, as pre-tax. What I started doing as of three years ago, because I can't do it because I have the IRA that I transferred over from my original 401k, but for my wife every year for the last three years, I've done a backdoor Roth first at 6,000 and then last year was 7,000 because we both turned 50, although she'll never admit it. And then this year, 7,500. So I don't have much more over the corpus at this point, just with what's happened over the last couple of years with the with her backdoor Roth IRA. 
what I will tell you is I'll keep doing it the 7,500 and then it becomes 8,000 or whatever that is as long as I can. And then that will probably be the last thing that we ever touch as far as any money that we have in retirement. So it'll be the first thing that the kids get that, um, you know, is, is free and clear and, and has no value. So even though it's only 20 grand now, you know, I hopefully I got another 30 to 40 years in the back end of me. And if I keep putting the, the 7,500 in every year or whatever that maximum rate is, that by the time it's over for either one or both of us, you know, that's another, you know, high six figure, seven figure type of account for the kids. Would you ever entertain a, a, a Roth conversion ladder or, or any type of conversion from your from your others? Yeah, and that, Jace, that's really what I've been thinking about. I'm probably going to be done in the 59 to 60 range. So my thought is between 59 and 60 and, and 75, you know, my last couple of three years, my thought is I'll pull back a half million dollars in cash. And that's what I'll live on, you know, primarily in the early years in a four and a half percent type of, uh, you know, short term high yield account. And that will allow me to show no income. So I'll have those years to be able to from based on today's laws, 15 years to convert as much as I possibly can to the lowest possible tax impact. You know, with the goal that it's all converted by the time required minimum distributions happen. That's why it's so important for me right now on this after-tax brokerage account. I want to get that into seven figures as fast as I can because that's my play money while I'm dealing with the Roth conversions in that range between 60 and 75. Awesome. So we focused a lot on the portfolio, where you've come from. At this point, let's focus on where you're going. You just mentioned that you probably call it quits, 59, 60s, got another decade and some change to, to work. Are you trying to hit a target net worth? Are you saving up for that second home or are you still planning to maybe sell that primary? Where do you go from here at this point? You know, it's so funny. We've been having these conversations so much because this whole midlife crisis we're going through where we've become an empty nest has been a little bit of a shock to us trying to figure out what to do next. And I've always thought eight million was my number because eight million at four percent is going to be 320 by the time taxes are involved that's 240 that's 20 grand a month net i pretty much think i can do anything i want to do in life and maintain lifestyle and actually probably increase lifestyle a little bit because we save so much right now if i had that number and you know again i can't eat my house so i always kind of look at my investables and that sits between you know 2 and 2.5 and um, you know the goal is to get that number in that $8 million range. Um, and that's the goal. I've also thought about, you know, do I quit before 59 or 60? Do I do, well, I was talking about things like car washes and self storage units and things like that. But one thing I found through COVID when I spent a lot of time watching law and order SVU reruns is that I got to keep busy as well too. So I've got to keep myself going and, uh, you know, and, and stay involved. So, um, if it's not doing this, it's doing something because I got to do something between eight and five. And so, again, I've kind of targeted that 59 to 60 range. But I could also run into one of those situations where it's 55 and I find something I like to do that pays a third of what I make. And I'm not saving anymore, but I'm enjoying what I'm doing as well. So, you know, that's a possibility as well. There's just a lot of different things that we've been looking at, you know, and a lot of it, too, is going to be where do the kids end up? 
Uh, because I can guarantee you when grandbabies start being had, my wife is going to have no desire to go live far away from them. So, you know, where do we have a place that's a, that's a destination place that they want to come to as well? You know, that's part of it. I think in the end, we're going to get there. We're going to get there and uh, and we're going to be okay. And that's probably over the last three or four years, the thing that I've I've understood that, you know, it's, it's definitely a real possibility that, you know, eight, eight million, you know, 20 grand a month as far as living with money to leave for the kids is a realistic possibility. And it would just become a matter of things like going and filling a jar of all the places we want to go to and then randomly pulling those out. And, you know, that's where we're going to go to that month or whatever. So that's that's really the plan right now. So when you think about leaving money for the kids, do you have a target number there or an idea of lifestyle or, or anything in particular you're thinking of when you think of that? I, I got to tell you what, I've got really, 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 really awesome kids. Uh, I brag about my oldest because he's 24 and he's uh, an institutional asset management and he's doing really, really well. But more importantly, he's my science experiment because he's been saving from the day that he um, that he started working. You know, he got into a really nice um, a training program out of college with 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 a major bank and it, it really has is, is worked out well for him. So, I told him when he graduated from college, I said, you're not going to have student loans because I paid for your college. And I gave him, you know, a decent car, a 2016 Camry that had 20 or 30,000 miles on it, but enough to, to get him started. But the whole idea was you're making a nice living and you are not paying those bills that other folks are paying. So put that towards yourself. And he has maxed out his Roth IRA from his first day. He has uh, got his 401k up to the match. He puts it into an after-tax investment account. Over the last couple of years, you know, each these two years, he's put over twenty five thousand dollars between his money and the company's money in to his, you know, into his investments. So as a 22, 23, 24 year old, that's really going to add up. So while I'd like to leave the kids, my target has always been around nine million. I can leave them three million dollars a piece. That was always my goal. And again, inflation adjusted. Who knows what that looks like? But in today's dollars, that's kind of you know what I'm thinking about at that point. But the great thing about it is. You know, he started so young. He's done so well for himself. He's saving so hard. He's caught the bug. My stuff's just going to go on top of his pile, which is really, really, really cool. So, you know, we're, we we have our Fidelity Charities account. We think about philanthropy. We give on an annual and a monthly basis to a lot of places. There's a lot of places that we've been long-term partners with that we could give a big gift to the end because it's not going to affect our kids because they've done so well in their own planning that, again, it's uh, they'll laugh at what we had to leave for them because they started so young in that wealth building for themselves. Wow, that that's a big number, $3 million each. Do they know that's coming? I mean, they they know that we're very comfortable and um, and they know. I mean, I, I preach to them. Uh, my daughter, for example, 17. I have a um, I have a custodial Roth with her where whatever she makes at her little restaurant that she works at, she saves 20 percent and I give her a 20 percent match. And uh, so I match her dollar for dollar. And so she gets to see that go in uh, custodial. And um, and the boys, I wanted them to be Ben and Arthur. So when they were, were young kids at 18, they started doing their $2,000 a year because I wanted to show them those numbers, what happened if they went 18 to 25. And then they just took off from there and just, you know, end up saving more. But they know they know that there's money there and uh, and they know that they're comfortable. But more than anything, they know that they're set up to do uh, well on their own because, you know, they walked out of college in a really good situation and really good majors. My middle one's in the Honor Society at Ohio State in the engineering program. I mean, he's going to do an internship this summer at Westinghouse in nuclear engineering. I mean, he's got a great 
future sitting in front of him as well. So it'll be there for them, but they're going to do well on their own even before they get their first dollar. And you've clearly taught them a ton, um, which will pay dividends. Uh, thinking about, you know, go- going back to, you know, really the beginning, when you mentioned that your wife originally stopped working uh, and, you know, you had the pressure of being the sole breadwinner, can you talk a little bit more about how you came to that conclusion um, for your family? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad you asked me about that because if somebody were to say wrap it up in one word in terms of, you know, your success and your family and, and all that, it's it's marry well, right? I mean, marriage is grand, divorce is 50 grand. I have the best wife in the world. I mean, she is so supportive. She is the world's best mom. And um, 1999, we had our first one and she was moving up in her career and she was doing really well. She was a better student than me in college. She was doing well. And um and we just did the math and it just made sense from a daycare standpoint for her to stay home. And I knew my career was on the way up and I knew I was doing well. And if we had to pick somebody that we're going to kind of a horse behind, it was going to be mine just from the upside that was there with the career. And so, you know, it really it became a lot of, you know, she she became the restaurant. She was the great cook that the reason we didn't go to the restaurant three or four times a week, we went three or four times a month because she cooked there. And, um, you know, we don't do DoorDash because she's the one that goes to the grocery store. That's part of the economic value that she brings. And I'll tell you that, you know, in my profession, the best ability is availability. And what it allowed me to do was to say, yes, what's the question? So what it allowed me to do was when the boss wanted me to go and do this job, that was a stretch job for me. But because I was able to get on an airplane and go do it and be willing to do it because she was home to take care of the kids, that allowed my income to grow. Right. So everything we have is a combination because she had the fort taken care of here that allowed me to get into this place where I'm making now, which is more than I ever would have dreamed of doing this. But because all those years along the way, when I was able to say, yes, what's the question and go get promoted, that added to it because I knew I had no doubt that everything was taken care of at home. And is she involved much in the financial decision making? <laughs> she uh, more than what she wants to be. We do our, our annual meeting with our financial advisor and she rolls her eyes and she always complains because it's me and him having conversations. And she just you know hears about it. All she wants to know is, are things OK? And the best way I can explain, describe my wife is she's like the elephant that used to have the chain against their leg that walks around in circles. And over time, that chain becomes dental floss around the elephant's leg, but the elephant still won't break the dental floss because it's so used to that chain. So she is uh, so she's very involved in terms of our, our day to day finances, our monthly budgeting, but in terms of what uh, our allocation portfolio is and what our uh, mutual funds are. All she knows is we're doing okay, but this month she has another $1,244 to spend before the end of the month, and that's what she kind of works towards. So, <laughs> Sounds like it works. Yeah, yeah, it really does. That's awesome. Well, Kevin, let's wrap up with a few rapid-fire questions. What's the most expensive shoes you've purchased? <laughs> my, uh, my old boss turned me on to Mephisto's about – 15, 20 years ago. So again, I'm not very cultured. I'm not very suave. I'm not a foodie. I'm not a, I'm not a real fashion guy. So if somebody says, these are the shoes you're supposed to buy, that's what I buy. And they were $300. But every time I buy them over and over again, because that's what he said I was supposed to buy. <laughs> that's awesome. What about the most expensive meal out that you pay for? Um, I, I've had a couple of times, uh, 
again, setting aside the work stuff, right? Because those things get really expensive, but that's that goes through the corporate Amex. But um, from a family standpoint, you know, we spend a lot of money in Hawaii at Mama's Fish House. Um, we had a situation where we went out and I was able to surprise the table and just pick up the bill. And it's in that six to $800 range. And I just love that. I love when I'm able to pick up the bill and say, don't sweat it. Even more when I kind of do it on the side with the waiters, they never even bring the check and everybody sits there and wonders, you know, when the check's coming and they're like, no, we're good. We're taken care of, you know? And so that's, that's one of my favorite things to do. That's cool. We covered vacation. We covered the car. <laughs> I love that truck. It's a love that truck. I'm, I'm, I love that truck for you, man. I've got a, <laughs> I've got a truck myself. It's not a Lariat, but uh, I, I love my truck. I love people to love their trucks. So <laughs> they're, they're fun vehicles to have. On a scale of one to 10, how would you rate your career and your love for your job or lack thereof? I um six. I mean, I have, I don't know what else. I would, it's, if somebody said to me, if money didn't matter, what would you like to do? I don't have something that said, oh, I wasted my life doing this because it should have been this. I mean, I'm pretty good at it. You know, I, I manage the financials. I manage the team. I manage the customers. It can be a drag, but every drag, every job can be a drag. I mean, you know, they uh, they take really good care of us and, uh, you know, and, and pay us pretty well, you know, to deal with a lot of crap. But, you know, I always tell everybody there's three things in my career that I really don't love to do. Right. They're price increases, they're promotional cuts and their supply chain issues. And from 2020 to 2022, every single conversation I had was one of those three things that made it really, really tough. Now, we're back into 2023 now. I'm back on an airplane a lot during the year, getting to be out in the field with my team. And it feels like the job that I really enjoyed. So, you know, probably a strong six to maybe seven as the job is constructed right now from 2020 to 22 through COVID, a good three. It was a rough gig during that time. How much TV do you watch during the week? Um, not a ton. I, uh, I got confused when they started everything going to streaming because you know, there's not a Thursday night at eight o'clock kind of show that you watch anymore. So I never really watch much TV. But if I find a series that somebody says, hey, go watch this on Apple or Netflix or whatever. My problem is I have to watch all 30 episodes at one time. I can never just pace myself. I'm just all in all the time. So I've got to watch the whole series and then you know, wait till the next one that I watch. How do you usually have fun? <laughs> I I just love, love, love spending time with the kids. Just, you know, showering them with gifts, taking them to ball games. I'm a, I'm a jam band guy. I love the dead. I love fish. I love goose. You know, I like going to, to festivals and concerts and that kind of stuff. And I really, really dig that. My brother and I really have a lot of fun with it. So between those two things, that's really how, how we have the majority of our fun. Has your risk tolerance changed as you've become wealthier? <laughs> you know, as as um, as Fang stocks were going crazy from 2016 to 2020, and I'm sitting on the sidelines, you know, with my diverse portfolio, I'm just, you know, because I'm not even an S&P index fund that's 29% weighted towards Fang. I was getting all frustrated that I wasn't part of the game. But I will tell you, you know, with 2021, my declines were not near worth what they would have been had I been in a uh, – a large cap, mega cap kind of fun. So I'm, I'm really, really happy right now in this 80-20, 80-20, you know, U.S. versus international. And uh, and I, I've seen enough of these things now to know that the economy is going to continue to expand. I'm going to be OK. I'm exactly good where I'm at right now. 
If you had a pick between hard work, luck, and skill that was most a big, or I guess you'd say the biggest contributor to your success, which one would you choose? I, I've been a really lucky guy. I mean, lucky from marrying over my skis and finding somebody who's you know, better than me to get married to, uh, stumbling into this career, finding a couple of champions early on in my career who really fought for me and helped me out. I mean, there's a base level of knowledge that I have to have or I couldn't survive. But then there's been a lot of fortune and a lot of people that have looked out for me. And, you know, in return, I try to find these young kids and then help them out and try to do the same thing for them that was done for me along the way. So I would say good fortune is a good, you know, 40% of it. And, uh, you know, and then there's some, some skill, you know, sitting inside of there and that, you know, 30, 40 range with the balance of it being the rest of it. Awesome. To wrap up, what one piece of advice would you give to somebody who's just starting out or any caution that you would give to somebody as they start their investing journey? Yeah, well, marry well, marry well. I think that's that's the most important thing. And, uh, you know, have aligned goals and it will all kind of work itself out. Take advantage of your of your match and think long term. Uh, it's tough at 23, 24, 25 to think about that. $200 a month becoming a million dollars, you know, in your fifties and sixties and that kind of stuff. So just having that discipline to know that over time it's going to work itself out. Um, it's the letter I would write to me if I would go back and talk to myself, you know, 20, 30 years from now. And I would tell my kids the same exact thing. Like I said, they're my science experiment that I'm getting started for all the things that I didn't do, but start early, stay consistent Keep at it. And one day you're going to wake up and go, wow, where did all this stuff come from? So it really works out well. Awesome. That's Kevin with a net worth of $3.5 million. Thanks for coming on the show today. Awesome, guys. I really appreciate it. Love the show. Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Jace Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website, millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.